0: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Daily Deep Dive. I'm your host, Tony Fry. This is episode 212. And if you are following along in real time, you know today we're talking about Lola by the Kinks. This is a great song, one of their best. But before we get to that, I just want to say thank you to those of you who have um, uh, swung over by herohabit.com and contributed to this podcast. I know we took a long hiatus last year, but we're back. And um, for those of you who jumped back in and, and and started contributing like you were before, I really appreciate it. It does help keep the lights on and keeps this podcast going for the next, I don't know, thousand episodes, however many we've got left to cover all these tracks. And then also I want to encourage everyone to swing by all the social medias Um, We're on Reddit now. We have a Facebook page. We have a Twitter account. You can find all of that if you just go to herohabit.com. And uh, there's a button at the top of the page for podcasts. Go to Kinks and Beats. And uh, you will find all the links to all of our social media and stuff for this uh, podcast. I'd like to have conversations with you. All right. So Lola by the Kinks, released on June 12, 1970 as a single. And it was backed with Berkeley Muse in the UK and Mindless Child of Motherhood in the US. And then it was released as the title track, sort of, part of the, part of the title, um, for Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Ground Part 1 on November 27th, 1970. It's interesting to me that neither of the B-sides were from the Lola sessions. You know, Muse is from the Village Green sessions, Mindless Child of Motherhood um, from the Arthur era, which had already been issued as a B-side. It was the B-side for driving in 1969 so i don't know why they chose um kind of old b-sides unless they were maybe considering saving some tracks uh, for potential future a-sides because power man for a while was considered as the lead off track before they'd finished lola this song became one of the band's most well-known songs of all time partly due to the fact that the title character is either a trans woman or cross-dresser, which was a topic rarely covered in rock music at that time. And uh, Rolling Stone ranked the track at number 422 on their 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list. And then in 2021, when they did the list again, after considerably more songs were released around the world, they listed the song at 386 uh, on their list of 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. So the fact that it went up as time moved on tells you everything you need to know about these types of lists. Um, but my disdain for these lists doesn't change the fact that this song is viewed very prominently in King's lore. In fact, the success of the single sparked somewhat of a comeback for the band, uh, who'd been, I think, unfairly ignored by the press and the general record buying public to that point, kind of between '66 and now. There's a bit of discrepancy. You know, I, I just briefly said the subject matter of the song. Um, there's some discrepancy on what the origin of the story is. Now, Ray, who you'd think would be the definitive source, but we all know how memories get warped and warbled over time. Ray says that the story came from the Kinks manager, Robert Wace, who name dropped in the song Money Ground later on in this album. We'll get to that in a couple of days. And Robert was in Paris and met somebody and took them back home And they were dancing in the apartment, and it was all a good time. And then Ray says when they all left at 6 a.m., Ray asked if Robert had noticed that the um, companion he brought home had stubble on his face, you know, a little 5 o'clock shadow coming in. And Robert was too drunk to care. That's what Ray says the story came from. Mick Avery, the drummer, um, says it's actually inspired by him, in a sense because uh, he would occasionally visit transsexual pubs and watch drag queen shows and stuff like that. And one time, uh, Ray was invited, and it inspired the song. And uh, as as uh, Avery puts it, he went off to get a drink, and Ray wrote Lola. Swing in London, baby. So regardless of where what the story lies, it, it, everybody who knows anything about the Kinks from their inner circle has said that it is based on a true story. And then I've heard other interviews where uh, Reyes said it was kind of based on two stories, so both of these accounts are potentially accurate. Uh, The media response to the song was very positive. The NME says, that that's the New Musical Express, um, says that the track has the potential to revitalize the Kings if it's put in the right hands of record promoters. Um, but they also call it a Latin song. So I don't hear that at all. So they were half right, but okay. Um, and this would be the first chart topper for the band since sunny afternoon. So it's pretty easy to imagine that had this song and the accompanying album been a flop, the kinks may not have made it through the seventies in the way that we know it. I mean, this was a crucial time for sure. America is finally open to them to tour and, um, it's been a few years since they were, you know, had a dominant music record hit on the radio. So this could have been a make or break situation, and Ray has admitted that this song was his attempt at writing a hit. Recording of the track began in April 1970, and they cut several versions, different keys, different grooves, completely different arrangements, All these were attempted at these sessions because they wanted to get it right. And I think Ray and the band knew what they had here as a potential, like I said, a potential turning point for this band. At some point during these sessions, Ray goes to a music shop to purchase a Martin acoustic because he wants to get a real nice acoustic guitar sound. And while he's there, he sees this dobro from 1938. And if you don't know what a dobro is, it's those guitars that are made out of metal. Right, And they've got the big resonator discs on the front. I'm sure you've seen them, and you might have just thought they were just metal guitars. But they are specifically, they're called Dobros, or sometimes you'll hear them called resonators. This one was made in 1938. It was for sale for 150 bucks, So he buys them both, Martin and the Dobro. And um, that iconic sound that they get from that intro is both of those instruments combined. And the dobro has the little bit more it's like a jangly acoustic guitar, so it's got a, it's almost feels like if the strings were a little too loose or something, and it's a little bit more metallicy sounding because of the nature of the instrument, so you combine that with the beautiful, rich tones of a martin, and that's what you get so by may the the band had a master recording for the song, and they decided to use it as an audition piece for a keyboard player because they wanted a keyboard player to go on the road with. And they had this American tour. They're like, we need to get a keyboard player. Let's bring some people in. And um, they played over this master of Lola. Turns out, though, John Gosling was the only player to audition. He gets the gig, obviously, as as we all know. And so this piano part on Lola, this is actually the first recording he did with the Kinks. It's his uh, audition piece. Does a great job. Uh, as he will do on future recordings. Because as we all know, his contribution to the band went much, much further than just being a hired hand for the roadshow. He became a fifth member. And that was not something that just evolved. Um, He becomes a fifth member immediately. On May 20th, the band record a lip sync performance for Top of the Pops. This is a video performance. Um, And this performance requires Ray to overdub his vocal. On May 25th, because the BBC is, you know, refuses to air the video with the lyrics referencing Coca Cola. They had a strict policy against product placement, and um, so Ray changed the lyrics to Cherry Cola for this video. But then a few days later, after that, on May 28th, he attempts to record a new vocal for the upcoming single, because the BBC is going to refuse to play it on the radio for the exact same reasons. They don't have one set of policies for TV and one for radio. It's across the board at the BBC. Um. But for whatever reason, he's unsatisfied with this adjustment. And on May 31st, takes a plane ride from New York back to London for a second overdub session set for June 1st. And this is the session that ultimately yields the single version vocals with Cherry Cola. In America, it was Coca-Cola. They kept it there. So this is strictly just to get played on the BBC. Uh, And what's weird is that when you look at the documents from this These recording sessions, it seems that Ray was literally just going in to punch in for this one word, or maybe cherry cola, you know, maybe two words. But he wasn't recording, according to these uh, sources, he wasn't recording a whole new vocal line. So it's amazing that he couldn't get that in one session. It took two sessions to do it. So even though the sources that I'm reading, make it seem like he's dropping in, just, you know, punching in for that one phrase. I have to think he's recording a whole new vocal line. I mean, it's, why is it taking him so long to to sing two words? Regardless, it's done. um, And uh, on this same day, there's a press release issued that retells the story of Ray's two trips to the studio, uh, you know, bouncing from America to London and back. To fix these vocals and to announce the release date of the album which is now less than two weeks away and um it also announces that john gosling is a member of the band so like i said this was not something that like they went on the road and they're like hey you want to keep playing in the band this was just you know a couple weeks after his audition they're putting out press releases that he's the new member of the band um between that press release and the release of the song Ray returns to the kinks in the States to continue their tour. Although plenty of uh, appearances are moved or canceled due to his trip back to the UK. And also Dave's second child, Simon was born on the 10th of June um, while the band performed in a DC record shop with a capacity of 150 people. Which when I hear that, when I read that, that sounds like my buddy's shop. One, two, three, four go records in Oakland, Um, which is, that was a plug. I did that for free. Um, And you should all check it out. If you're ever in Oakland, um, to either buy records or see a show whenever he's allowed to host shows again with all the COVID stuff. Um, As would be expected, the song gets banned all over the world, particularly for its most clever line. I'm glad I'm a man and so is Lola. I mean, this, this song, the lyric is filled with clever lines. You know, he walked up to me and in a dark brown voice, an electric candlelight, and all this kind of... It's got some really clever lines. But that one line, I'm glad I'm a man and so is Lola, that tells the whole song, right? This song is just about a a strong woman up until that point, you know? Or it's about a weak guy, I don't know. But at that point, that's when the song gets controversial, quote unquote. Um, but that didn't stop it from becoming a huge hit and even hit the top 10 in countries that refused to play it initially. Like Australia, where it hit number six, had made an edit for radio that just omitted the line. In the UK, Lola reaches number two, and in the US it peaks at number nine, and it ranks as number 52 on the Hot 100 for the year of 1970, which is pretty good for a song that come, came out you know, well into 1970. We're getting to the autumn of 1970. As far as the song goes, there's not really um, a standard form here. There is a chorus, but you don't really hear it till the end. It's more like a coda with the, with the repeated Lola, lola." lola la, 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 la. That whole repeated section kind of is the chorus. That's the sing-songy part. I hear it as more of a verse and two different bridges. And it's also kind of hard to nail down a specific key for this song. The easy answer is to say it's in the key of E, major. But the three chords, because that's the first chord of the song. And usually the first chord of the song is going to be your home key. And that's E in this case. But the three chords used in the verse are the one, four, and five of A major, which is where the harmony resolves at the end of the verses. So it starts on the E, right? And that feels like your home key. And then it resolves to the A at the end of the verse. And that also feels like your home key. And all the chords. Um, that are in that piece, that verse are primary chords in the key of a um So I could go either way on that, but then there's um the first bridge where he sings, we drank champagne and danced all night. Here they seem to be more grounded in e because it's just a five to five of five to four, and then the harmony. Um, although on an, uh, uh, an A chord, it doesn't sound as resolved. So he hits that A chord at the end of this, and he hits an A chord at the end of the verse, and it sounds done. But he hits the A chord at the end of this bridge, and it seems like it's hanging there. Right? It doesn't really resolve to that A. It feels unresolved. And then there's the second bridge where he sings, I pushed her away, which again feels like E and ends on a sustained B7 chord all right so b7 is the the dominant chord in key in the key of e and e is coincidentally like we just said the first chord of the verse so they they are coming out of this second bridge and really 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 hammering in that we're going to be in the key of e and then they hit the e chord so there's this great resolution maybe the most definitive resolution in the whole song but The rest of the verse is still the same, and it resolves on A again. So the resolution's never on the key of E. So I want to say that he's floating around between two keys that are very, very close to each other. The key of A has three sharps. The key of E has four sharps. So it's not uncommon for these two keys to be uh, accessed in a song, but the way the music is presented, you have to kind of hear the tonic as opposed to being able to see it on paper. right? Because like if I was to look at that paper, and see that B7 sustained for so long, or see that A chord sustained for so long, I would assume something different than what my ear actually hears when you hear them singing it. I uh, I recall reading an interview a while ago with Ray, where he said, um, had he known he'd be singing this song for the rest of his life, he would have written it in a different key. Because the high vocals are very tiring on the voice. It's a tough song to sing, those high notes, um, which is why I'm not going to sing it here today, but it's interesting that they tried different keys. And for whatever reason, this is the one they, they stuck on. Um, and that's it. I mean, this is one of those songs that I think for a lot of diehard fans of the band, we skip, right? We love it. It's a great song, but it's also the one you hear most often on the radio. And it's really the gateway song for a lot of casual fans. And that's not a diss on its greatness. I feel the same way about Hey Jude. Right? These songs are a lot of people's favorites, but they're also a lot of people's, you know, I've heard it a million times, skip track. I mean, it's the reason I bought the Lola album in the first place, but is admittedly the song from the album I listen to least. Um, but when I'm handed an acoustic guitar at a party and asked to play something, you can always bet that I'll uh, get to Lola eventually. It's a classic, 100%, and could be one of the most important songs Ray Davies wrote you know, after 1966 or whatever, you know, like this was a, a groundbreaking song in a lot of ways, both for the band and then just for pop music in general. It's good stuff. I mean, it's Lola. What are you going to do? I have a friend who named her cat Lola after this song. So, you know, it's a great piece. And um, the musicianship, on it. we didn't even talk about that, but what are you going to say? It's brilliant all the way through. Uh, great guitar parts lead guitar by dave is phenomenal and again as always great guitar tone and i just tweeted at him the other day that he needs to release a book that's got all the guitar gear that the kinks use because they pulled so many different tones in their catalog out of all their guitars and it would be cool to sit down and look and be like all right he was for this he was playing this guitar with this amp and you know whatever and it would be it would be cool to hear or to be able to to read that and see. All right, but that's it. That's Lola. Uh, if, you, if you don't know this song, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast at all because everybody knows Lola, right? I remember this song from when I was a kid um, because my dad used to work with someone named Lola and it would come on the classic rock station and it would stick in my head because I actually kind of knew a Lola in real life. And then you flash forward to you know, nineteen ninety nine or two thousand, whenever I bought that first this this album. Um, and it was all because of this song. This was the gateway to my entire Kinks obsession. All right. If you want to get a hold of me, you can get me at Kinksandbeats at herohabit.com or call me at 925-494-1739. And of course, like I said at the top of the show, hit me up on any of the social platforms that we are on. You can find all that information at Herohabit.com. I will talk to you guys tomorrow as we keep digging through All Things Must Pass. Have a great day, guys.